Welcome to The Innovative Mindset with your host, Harrison Kelly. The Innovative Mindset was created to give easy access to people with innovative stories and livelihoods that can teach valuable lessons to everybody. Today on episode 15 of The Innovative Mindset, we have Chris Joyce. Chris Joyce is the founder and CEO of Gusher. He's also started 23 other companies. His products have sold in more than 11,000 stores in 23 different countries. Gusher is a simple, quick, and easy way to create and build a startup without investors or capital. I hope you enjoy this conversation, episode 15, with Harrison Kelly and Chris Joyce. Hello once again, ladies and gentlemen, super excited to bring you yet another episode of The Innovative Mindset. I have a very special guest today. His name is Chris Joyce, founder and CEO of Gusher, a super innovative and forward-thinking platform. How's it going, Chris? Doing well. How are you doing, Harrison? I'm doing quite good. I'm, uh, I'm super excited. For, for those unfamiliar with Gusher, I'm going to let Chris talk about it a little bit. But long story short, without going into too much detail because it's, it's that early on, but... Uh, Gusher is a platform that allows people, early stage startups to, to recruit talent and kind of get started in the process of, of really getting the ball rolling. And I recently started with a startup as a result of finding it via Gusher. So this is a incredibly powerful platform that really extends the opportunity for people outside of the, the bubbles that we'll, we'll also be getting into to, to create startups that pretty much from any location, whether you're in Silicon Valley or the middle of Nebraska. <laughs> so Chris, do you want to just give me a little insight into who you are and how you got started on Gusher? Sure. My pleasure. I, I've had a lot of companies. I've had 24 companies of my own that I've started from scratch, ranging in all different verticals from medical devices to consumer goods, to manufacturing, SaaS companies, you name it. And one of the things that I always did is, you know, I started started companies from the time I was in college at NYU in New York City and never really needed capital in the beginning stages. Back then, I would do something called just finagling the deal, meaning that if I needed a patent attorney, well, I'd bring in a patent attorney and they'd get a half a percent or a one percent tick of the company. If I needed a manufacturer, I would go ahead and work out some type of arrangement with them for equity or something along those lines. And I was always able to get these companies going long before there were any venture capital ecosystems, long before there were any you know networks of angel investors or anything in a systematized way. And then later down the line, as the companies grew, then you yeah, of course, you would need type of larger scale capital or cash gap financing. But flash forward to just a couple of years ago, and I was dealing with a lot of entrepreneurs, and I started to see a huge pattern that the vast majority of them just weren't getting financed. Only about one in 700 were really getting any type of formal venture capital funding in any way, shape, or fashion. So if you're not in San Jose, if you're not in New York, if you're not in Israel, your chances of getting financing for a startup is extremely, extremely low, about one in 700. So I said to myself, all right, you know, is there a way to take what I've been doing my entire life, my entire business career, standardize that in some way, and hopefully give entrepreneurs a different way of starting companies or a higher likelihood or a shot of being able to bring their company to life? And so what we ended up doing was creating Gusher. Gusher is a platform to launch companies without the need for money. People join companies in exchange for what's called 
performance-based equity. Uh, people don't get a damn thing in the company unless the company is able to reach launch stage and achieve their goals. And what it does is it makes everybody row in the same direction and you have an extremely high success rate. We've got greater than an 80% success rate. We've got a couple hundred companies from across the globe in all different industries. Uh, everything from B2B, B2C, B2B2C, and everything in between. And so what it does is it enables anyone anywhere to go ahead and be able to bridge that initial cash gap and bring their idea to life. They don't need capital, they need people. And that's what we're able to do. Definitely. And just to back up what you're claiming, the, the, the talent on this team of people that I met on the startup that I just got started with on Gusher, the CEO is a great guy. I know you know him personally. He's the one raised our intro but the team that he brought together for the most part has been pretty exceptional as well really smart cmo we're in the process of getting a cfo now but we just brought in a sales guy who seems pretty tip-top shape so it's true people love working with startups so giving the opportunity for people outside of these major city hubs is, is super powerful and really opens up opportunities for for innovation to flourish anywhere Definitely. Definitely. And the key is what you stated, actually. And you said, hey, the team, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but the team is high quality. The gist of what we do is I always say to the, the following to founders, if you had a million dollars, two million dollars in the bank, how would you build your company? What would you do? And then gusher that. The point is not just to bring in, you know, like a transactional team on just a technical level. The point is to go ahead and bring in a high level team that enables you to leapfrog generational development. And instead of creating an MVP, a minimum viable product, to create what we call an MVP, a market viable product, a market viable company. And so that's really what we're about building is taking, you know, people unlocking their potential, bringing in, you know, phenomenal people into what they're doing and walking them through every step of the way to either become self-sustaining and or attract larger scale capital. And that's what we do. It's fascinating. Uh, so taking it a step back, uh, the, the big problem that you identified is that one in 700 companies outside of these bubbles, I'm from the, I'm from the New York city suburbs. So I'm definitely within one of those bubbles. And then San Jose, the California bubble that you mentioned, uh, they're undoubtedly the places where innovation are happening, mostly because historically those have been the places that innovation is happening. What do you think the reason is that companies outside of those bubbles struggle to find uh, capital and to grow their businesses? Well, well, think of it this way. So let's say you're in the New York metro area, all right? Within an hour or two of you in terms of driving radius is 35% of the investment wealth of the United States. It's concentrated. So what you do is you have basically a regional bias in terms of the way that certain investment groups, the vast majority of them operate. So if you're not in their backyard, especially with startups, they're typically not gonna give you a look because one of the qualifications, the conditions that they look for is that you are local so that they can interact with you. They can go ahead and see you and check you out. And that's part of the due diligence process. As much as you, know, you like to think that maybe uh, you're in Nebraska or something, and you can attract somebody to take a look at you from New York, unless you already have serious traction, unless you have a good amount of sales volume already, you're already red flagged. You're not in their backyard, so therefore it's a big red flag for them, and that's really where the vast majority of people end up getting screwed, for lack of a better word. It's just not regionally where that type of capital is. Gotcha. So a lot of it, I think, is that face-to-face -face interaction, like you mentioned, like not being in the backyard. Do you think that that's changing? 
Obviously, Gusher is changing the way that's working. Do you think that that kind of mindset of you need to be in my backyard has changed in recent years, especially as Zoom has risen in so much popularity? I'd say yes and no, and let me explain, okay? So this is what we've seen, and especially during you know the last seven, eight months with COVID and everything that's been going on. We see the investment meetings going on in terms of, yes, investors are having the meetings, yes, et cetera, et cetera. But still, it's requiring that physical interaction unless they're at a certain stage. So what we've seen is a lot of the existing investor base is, is investing in previously existing relationships. So they've been loath to go ahead and have it. Now, here's where the video or the interaction, even asynchronous or synchronous video comes into play. And that's when it comes to building up your company. Now, that is like a phenomenal way of doing it. We've done it for literally a very long time, uh, for six, seven, eight years years in terms of plus that we've been able to do it. So building teams from across the globe as a result of the video, insanely fast. Building the companies, insanely fast. You know, going ahead and establishing the relationships, the initial stages of investor relationships, sure, you can do that, but those people in terms of how they interact, and I say those people in quotes, because that's how I refer to VCs, uh, literally they require it. And, and it's been really, you know, an interesting thing to see, because they haven't evolved that much, as much as you'd like to think they have. Yeah, you would think these companies that are fueling innovation would be fueling innovation <laughs> internally, but I guess it's all about the money with them. Well, well, think of it this way. They have a very specific model that has constraints to it. So, so not to get into too much detail, but when they go ahead and have a monetization event, they can't go ahead and reinvest that money. So they have to go ahead and distribute it to limited partners. So not to go again into too much detail, it limits the type of companies that they can really go ahead and look at. And venture capital has really become primarily private equity. It's not like taking an, an idea and funding it at the idea stage. That's a nice, you know, nursery rhyme or, you know, fantasy bill. It happens occasionally, but really rarely does that happen. Got it. Got it. So taking it back, you mentioned that that first number, one in 700, that is a very tiny fraction. Yet you said on Gusher, you're finding success rates of 80%. Do you attest that solely to the, the talent and that, that mindset of thinking more long-term with your, with your MVP? Or is it, is it another, what other variables would you say factor into that success rate as well? Well, there, it's funny you ask because it took us a while to actually figure out what are the conditions, what is actually making these companies succeed, what is the actual you know, criteria or demographic or whatever it is that's actually these companies, these people, these founders have in common. And what we've seen is a couple things. First of all, we have a saying on Gusher, one plus one equals done. One plus one equals done. What we mean by that is the second that you're able to bring in one person into your company in an equity-based, a performance-based equity way, chances are you're the company that's going to go ahead and succeed. So if you're not able to bring anybody in the beginning stages, you're basically dead on yeah, arrival. Red flag, so, red flag. Right. It's a form of market validation. And usually what it has to deal with is the way that the idea, the problem is communicated. If the idea is communicated in a very simplistic format, and I don't joke when I say this, so much so that an eight-year old can understand it, even with extremely technical deals, those are the ones that are able to go ahead and succeed. But as for founders, this is what we have found 
is the actual criteria that determines whether or not they work. And most people can't guess this, okay? It's not a demographic criteria. So it's not an age, it's not an education, it's not an eth ethnicity, it's not the religious background, it's not from geographic locations, not their income, it's not you know their educational level. What actually determines from what we've seen the success rates, and it's kind of crazy, is how honest they are. All right. So the more extreme honest they are, meaning that they don't say they know something when they don't know it, those are the founders that succeed. Those are the ones that actually take off because what ends up happening is their team helps them. Their team steps in. They don't pretend to be something they're not. They're not the fake it till you make it crowd. They're more of the, hey, we're extremely transparent. And those are the deals that work. It's so fascinating you say that because part of the reason I ended up hopping into this startup, I can't wait till I can talk about it <laughs> like out in the open, you know, but in the meantime, part of the reason I, I was so inclined to join it is just because meeting the CEO, he has such a warm, inviting presence about him, you know, like he's such a likable, seemingly very trustworthy guy. We discussed my contract and he was willing to, he just, he's very willing to be transparent and open and uh, has been very helpful in every step of the process. That being said, I've worked with startups in the past where the CEO, I worked with a CEO who was demeaning, who's like talked down at me. And I was, I've never been quicker to get out of a company that I believed in the product, but I didn't believe in the CEO, which is, I honestly think the the person behind the scenes is more important than the actual product a hundred percent. So um, it seems like Gusher is a, a perfect testament to that. And here's the thing that you see, at least on Gusher, okay? So, you know, in terms of, let's say, failure rates or, or what we call red flags on our side internally for if a deal isn't going to work. So, yeah, you have that one plus one equals done. But also occasionally you have it where, I, I hate to put it this way, a founder can BS, all right? But they usually can't BS for long. So usually within two to four weeks, the team is like, well, this isn't the person that we thought they were. And so when you see them bailing ship, we know, okay, that deal's done. The person isn't, you know, honest. They're just not honest. But that's very rare. It's not a lot of people, believe it or not. Extremely rare. Well, thank God for that. Usually, I think a lot of the people in the startup environment understand the bigger picture and and want their whole team to be successful and, and recognized for what they're doing. So but when, when you're building something in a collaborative way, you find out real quickly on a deeper level who a person is. So, you know, when these teams are coming together, the one thing that I tell founders repeatedly is that, you know, this isn't transactional. This is something that's more like dating and marriage, and you have to kind of treat it as such. You can bring people on in specific roles, yes, that, that act in a way as cogs, but the main gist is these people should be understanding really that bigger picture, and they shouldn't come on unless they see that bigger picture. And so it's not just getting a team, it's getting the right team, the right people for that founder. And so, you know, there's a saying in the used car industry that there's an ass for every seat, and, you know, it's kind of a raw statement. But the same thing happens with founders. A lot of times founders are like, well, you know, I'm not sure I'm not that that type of face person. You know, I'm not like, hey, that extremely outgoing person. And maybe they're more introverted. Believe it or not, they're able to attract the right team for them. You know, it's not that there's just one type of team. They're able to go ahead and attract the right team for them. And that's insanely important. Definitely. Yeah, there could be someone who's absolutely brilliant. But if they're if they're not uh they're not a similar personality type or can clash with the, the personalities that are already on board. It can still be super problematic. I mean, you see it with people at some of the biggest startups ever. There are people that left early on, like Steve Wozniak left and left Apple. He's like example number one that comes to mind just because he wasn't a right fit with, uh, with Steve Jobs' intense personality.
So. Exactly. But but also think of this. Let's say you, you have a founder, and, and let's play the opposite extreme. We've seen this actually happen also, where you have a brilliant technical founder. But you know what? Having a technical solution to something is really only a very small portion of the story usually. So that human element, the way that it resonates in the marketplace, the way that the story is told, the way that the markets and determining the personas and who to go after is usually a lot more important when it comes to the success of the company. So we've seen it where founders, you know, they realize what their strengths and weaknesses are. And we've seen them actually bring in CEOs. They bring in, you know, people to actually run that aspect of it to let them concentrate on just the creation. And that does work. So it just, you know, whatever the personality is, it doesn't matter usually, you know, as long as they're honest. Yeah, you just have to kind of accommodate accordingly and uh, <laughs> and fill the gaps as needed. So as we as we talk further about people outside of Silicon Valley and uh, the New York City uh, bubble, what do you think some of the most important attributes of someone who's early on in a startup would be? Like, what would you recommend they do? Like, sorry, <laughs> what challenges do you think that they most often face that they can address early on? I think it comes to really two things. I have something that I call the deal rules, okay? So two of the deal rules, deal rule 28 and deal rule 29, are I think the most important when it comes to people that are starting out in terms of the entrepreneurial road or the founder road, whatever it may be. And deal rule 28 is trust the process, all right? It's a very simple deal rule. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that once you start the process, okay, once you get on the roller coaster, that entrepreneurship roller coaster, the only person in this world that can stop it is you, the founder. So you're the person that decides when to give up. And so whether or not you're on the right road or you have to shift or you have to pivot or if you have to create or you have to iterate or you just have to dig in, the recognition that once you go down that road that you're the only person to stop it, that's usually where people don't realize that for a while. Okay. And so even if you don't hit it off right big, which the vast majority don't, it's a building process, just don't stop. If you don't stop, eventually you will get to where you want to go. It may not be exactly that first vision that you thought, but just don't stop. It's as simple as that. And it's as difficult as that, you know, and, and really the deal rule 29 is I am enough. This is what I've run into time and time again with founders is no matter what their background, all right, whether they've done companies before, whether they've been a middle manager or whether they've been a server, you know, at a fast food place or whatever the heck it may be. You know, their, their fundamental issue is almost in a way imposter syndrome. And what I fundamentally believe is that the universe makes sense. If it doesn't, there would be no computers that we're talking to back and forth on high-speed optical fiber and everything else. We wouldn't have a machine that's made over you know, 40, 50, 60, 80 years of development to come here. So you are enough fundamentally to do whatever it is that you're trying to do, even if you don't have the answers, even if you're in the fog of war, you know, as, as we call it, you fundamentally are enough. And as a founder, you have to trust that you are enough. It's as simple as that. And again, as hard as that. A hundred percent. And I think a lot of people stop, do, like hold themselves back from accomplishing something great just as a result of that fear of I'm not enough. For me, like I got started on LinkedIn probably about six to eight months ago, posting my own content on there regularly. And a lot of people my age would be hesitant to do that. And I was hesitant to do it for some time because it's kind of like, 
I'm a young guy. I just graduated college. Like who am I to be sharing insights out there? But the, the response has been great thus far. And I've learned so much along the way, learned a lot about myself. The first couple podcasts, I was talking like a mile a minute, but it took me, it took me physically starting to realize like, all right, slow it down a little bit, <laughs> use your voice properly, but you need to actually do it to realize that, you know? And that's the, the quickest way, typically, at least I find, as a founder, or as an entrepreneur, or as a starter, to learn. Yes, you can study it. Yes, you can look at what other people have done. But there's a big difference between reading a book on how to ride a bicycle or watching a YouTube video on how to ride a bicycle and actually getting on the damn bike and trying to ride it. You, know, you learn way, way quicker by getting on that damn bike. It's just the way that life works. And I've seen it time and time again, you know? A hundred percent. This actually brings me to, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Dan Locke. He's one of my, probably one of my favorite. uh, He's like, he's very entrepreneurial. He failed in about probably 10 to 15 businesses before hitting success. And now he's like Gary V style, hundreds of thousands of subscribers. He's legit. And I tend to agree with him on most things, but something that I think you're going to disagree with that I also disagree with. He constantly says you shouldn't get started if you don't have the capital to get started. Uh, And for me, it's like I've had so much success launching this podcast, doing my own organic outreach on LinkedIn. It's like I could have waited because I didn't have money to get started, but I've been doing it. It's it's it cost my time, not my money. But I imagine I didn't start because of the money. So I just want to hear your response to waiting to get started if you don't have money. Well, well, let me give you an example, and, and this is something I quite literally lived, okay? So I literally had this company that literally I started. Uh, it was in the software industry, the SaaS industry. I won't say what it was, but I said I had enough of it. I just didn't want to do it, okay? And if I stopped this company, it was basically at the point penniless. So I woke up one day, you know, right after, and I said, you know what? I just want a low-carb blueberry muffin. Literally, I woke up, I wanted a low-carb blueberry muffin. I was on a low-carb diet for two years. I got fed up. I wanted a low-carb blueberry muffin. I didn't have money. I had nothing, zero. I mean, absolutely freaking nada. So what did I go ahead and do? I started going ahead and going to the health food store, seeing if there's anything. No. I started going in, trying to do some basic research online about it, but there was nothing. I took some protein powder, tried to screw around with it, got nowhere, okay? But the fact of the matter is what I did is I wanted that damn blueberry muffin. I didn't give a rat's ass about money or anything else. So I start reaching out to all these different food chemists everywhere. At the time, uh, you know, it was the AOL membership directory. And so I start reaching out to all these different food chemists. They're all telling me it couldn't be done. It shouldn't be done. It wouldn't be done. Go screw myself, etc. To make a long story, and they literally did that, okay, which oh is gosh. a whole different tangent. <laughs> uh, but at the time, it was extremely controversial. So why am I saying this? Well, I found a guy in the middle of nowhere that literally said, yeah, I'll help you. Two months later, I had a low-carbohydrate blueberry muffin that was 2.6 grams of carbs and basically a 60-gram muffin. So the size of a regular muffin, but almost no carbohydrates, all right? So I started this company. I go ahead and I walk into this place, uh, and this is almost locally to where I am now outside of Pennsylvania. I walk into this factory because I knew I needed a factory. I didn't have any money, okay? I walk in there. I go end up doing a handshake deal with a guy for the actual space. He ended up being a manufacturer of food equipment for large-scale, uh, large-scale food companies that you know, okay? So he said, sure, let's give it a shot, okay? Had no money. I had no equipment, nothing else, okay? I start down this road. Suddenly, I get a small investor. I'm talking like a tiny freaking investor. That little tiny investor, I was able to go ahead and get some other stuff, like some little shelving and this and that. But I end up calling around for equipment. 
I go ahead and I, and I get a deal from an equipment manufacturer here in Philadelphia that said, yeah, we've got a depositor just sitting here. Just take it. I swear to God said, just take it. Okay. I then hunt. I, I now hunt down this oven, this special oven. And these stories all have different things that are really deep and I'm, I'm being cursory. So I end up finding this oven in the middle of freaking nowhere. All right. And so what ends up happening, this special oven, I have the exact amount now for from this small investment. I can't even get this oven moved because it's gargantuan. This isn't like an oven that you have in your house. So I end up having it where I'm sitting there all day. I can't get this oven going ahead and lifted or anything else. Uh, this 18-wheeler truck shows up at like 5 p.m. in the afternoon. And this is the way startups happen when you don't do it with money and you're on the right road. You listening to me? So he goes ahead and the 18-wheeler truck says, you need a forklift. And I'm speeding and cutting out aspects of the story just for time's sake, okay? So I go, okay, give me a minute. I'm in the middle of nowhere. This is farmland in Hagerstown, Maryland, okay, at like a, a, um, a uh, storage facility. So I'm at the storage facility. I walk to the road. There's a nursery like 50 yards down. I go in. I'm able to finagle a forklift truck for nothing. Start coming down with a forklift truck. Now it's like 5.05, 5.10. These guys are like they want to get home. It's the end of their day. They say a forklift truck isn't going to do it. I'm like, what are you talking about? They go, you need a crane truck. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Kidding? I'm, like, I'm like, give me a minute. I swear to God when I tell you, Saracen, all right? I swear to God. I walk to the road. What's coming down the road? A crane truck. I don't know if you can see this, but I'm getting goosebumps. Yeah, that's okay? insane. I wave down the crane truck. I'm like, you want to make a stop. quick? I go, you want to make a quick fifty bucks? He goes, hell yeah! Pulls it up. You should have seen the guys' faces that were driving the rig, the eighteen wheeler thing. They're like, you got to be kidding me. Long story short, I was able to get that oven and get it back to the plant, all that stuff, and got going. What you have to understand is you can never have everything in perfection. The act of actually doing it, the act of starting something puts in motion all this invisible stuff that you'll never, ever see until you actually proceed. So, And you start and you use what you have where you are. And that comes back to being, all right, I am enough and trusting the process because you can't have all this money from all these investors raised because that in and of itself is a horrible form of market validation and your chance of failure is way higher than if you just start the damn thing. It's all about starting. I, I couldn't starting. agree more. That's why it's so surprising to me that someone who failed that many times says you need to have money to start. But it's I'll tell you why. And, and I don't know anything about the guy. My bet is the following. After the 14th or 15th time, he finally had an investor uh, that went ahead and funded it. And so he made the connections. And now he had that path that worked. So for him, that time, it worked. Gotcha. Maybe. Maybe. it's uh, Maybe I'll get him know. on the podcast sometime and I'll ask him. There you go. <laughs> You can butt heads. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so as we kind of wind things down here, you've already done such a great job of talking about some of the, the principles that you live by. I just want to see, I, of, I often like to close things out. Is there any other life principles, business, or just personally that you like to live by that you feel are, are worth sharing? I, I think it all comes down to one thing, and I touched on it, and I, and I think it's so fundamental and so basic, but I think it's the most damn important thing there is. And I don't care what you do. I don't care whether you're a doctor. I don't care whether you're, you're, you're going ahead and create a manufacturing company or a software company or an entrepreneur or whatever it may be. You just never give up. That is it. There is nothing else because if you don't give up, you'll end up iterating. You'll end up figuring out how to pick the lock. You'll end up going ahead and finding the gold main. There is nothing else in terms of that gets 
to the success other than never giving up at its base. It's such an important thing, especially these days on the internet. It's, it's very easy to get caught up in the, uh, the woe is me kind of mindset. And granted, it's like, I've been very fortunate to have led a, a like my life has been great thus far, but I, I remember I went to this real estate networking event and the lead guy was talking about his parents, his dad, like had murdered his mom as a child. And like, could you imagine living with that trauma? And then he went on to build this real estate empire and he pretty much just looked everyone in the face and was like, if I can deal with that shit and still make it like, what's your excuse? What's your excuse? You know? So no matter what that resilience and just remembering, like you can do it. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter what hardships you've had to deal with. Like the opportunity for success is there. So it's powerful. It's powerful stuff. Exactly. Just start and keep going. Maybe, maybe do some pivoting. You might have to hop onto a different, uh, you might have to switch roads, maybe <laughs> hop sure. on a different trail, but. And of course you're going to learn. And, and of course you're going to run into different scenarios. You know, there, there's a million ways to go ahead and do it. There's an indefinite amount of ways, but you just have to find the right way for you. And the thing is just don't get caught up in it. Just keep going. Just keep trying. Just never give up. Really. It's simple. It is. There's this song that I listen to all the time and there's a like two minute stretch where they just repeat the words, keep moving forward over and over and over. And it really resonates with me just because that's, it literally comes down to those three words. No matter what, you just have to keep moving forward, whether it's a hundred miles an hour, or you're, you're in the slow lane, like whatever it takes, as long as it's forward, you're going to be bound to do great things. I make these videos. And the last thing, the last thing I show is a slide that always says, keep going because keep going. that's all it is. Just keep going. Simple. It doesn't it's mean you necessarily simple. keep doing the same damn thing over and over, but it means you keep going. Yep, exactly. Well, Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. I, I hope to have you back again, just because you have so many insights that, <laughs> that tie in directly to my passion. So, so thank you once again. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's Alrighty. been a blast. Yep. Take care. Thank you so much for tuning in to episode 15 of The Innovative Mindset with Chris Joyce. Please join us on your favorite podcast platform. That's YouTube included for the video version of the show. So that's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify as well. Don't forget to follow on Instagram and connect with Harrison on LinkedIn. Thank you guys so much for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next one.